Tonight um, is, uh, I want to remind you that I at least see myself, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm succeeding, but I see myself as the counselor in chief um, I, because what I'm offering is um, w- what I consider to be uh, counsel more than exegesis. It's counsel that is based on this doctrine of adoption um, because I think there's so much. I mean, we're oftentimes not as healthy spiritually as we could be, um, and much of that, or some of that, um, is derived from our, our, our failure or our unwillingness, whatever you call it, uh, to, con- to, to, to believe promises and to see ourselves as the Scriptures describe us. We're not, we're not servants. We're not slaves. We're sons. We're adopted. We're daughters. Um, so what this is is um, a little bit of <laughs> counsel that is derived from the, uh, the truth of adoption, and I, I hope it will be helpful to you. I think because we do not believe that we are loved um, as sons, um, of course, rooted in based on the, the Christ's righteousness, um, there, there are certain um, pathologies that are true of us, behavioral pathologies that, um, that grow out of our... our, um, our, our Failure to grasp and appreciate and enjoy the things that are uh, included in this doctrine of adoption. So what I have for you tonight is a a, a few examples of our behavioral pathology. Um, And and maybe you'll be able to see yourself in one of these or two of these or perhaps maybe all of these for for all I know. Um, But I have about four um, behavioral pathologies that I think spring from a result of um, our uh, unfamiliarity or unbelief when it comes to the doctrine of adoption, okay? So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, And so hopefully you'll be able to see yourself in in one of these or maybe all of them and and then correct that um, uh, with uh, some stuff that we say at the end. All right, so that's what we're doing. Um, Here's pathology number one. Um, uh, because I am not um, overcome with my status, my new status as a child of God, I cannot risk being honest about my sins, um, so I pretend. Um, uh, the idea of accountability is a foreign notion to me. Because I cannot risk other people knowing of my struggles with sin, so I become a, a, a pretender. I'm, um, um, I'm dishonest about who I am, and I'm unwilling for anybody to know um, what really is going on inside of me and what I'm really wrestling with. So, um, because I, I, I can't risk being really known... I do, I become um, a spiritual phony, um, or I turn on the, um, the spiritual afterburners and I uh, exhaust myself in church work. Um, <clears throat> you're exhausted, I'm exhausted, we're all exhausted because we, we do not believe that... Um, that God loves me. 
as a son. So um, when it comes to uh, my service inside the church or, or my church work, I do it because um, I have to convince myself that I'm not a bum and I have to convince you that I'm not a bum. Um, I do it in the hope that somebody will, will love me or uh, uh, approve of me. And when I perform that work of service and I, and I don't get the kind of feedback or the kind of gratitude that I, that I um, expect, um, I get angry. Um, and to get that approval that I so want and um, so desperately need, I try to control you, you the, 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 the people for whom I'm doing this, so that you will address my need um, of feeling so rotten about who I am on the inside. Um, instead of doing these things because um, I'm expressing gratitude to Christ because of his great sacrifice for me, um, and, uh, and if I get no gratitude, so be it, uh, gratitude from people I'm serving, uh, I might I might experience a bit of disappointment, but um, but my motive is as a son is is gratitude to the father instead of trying to manipulate you to somehow meet my need of um, of uh, being recognized and appreciated. All of it because I cannot risk you knowing who I really am. And so I either, I, um, I pretend, or I get really involved in some kind of church project which, um, which will uh, convince me that I have worth and hopefully convince you as well. So that, that, that's one of the pieces of pathology that, that come from, I think, or at least are, is a derivative of my failure to appreciate my sonship that I'm adopted into the family of God. Um, I, 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 um, I'm not secure in who I am uh, in my relationship with God, so I'm certainly not, in, I'm not secure in my relationship to you. So I pretend. There's a lot of hiding that goes on. Um, uh, I'm good at hiding the truth from people. I don't want you to know uh, the truth about me, and so I, um, I uh, have developed lots of strategies for hiding uh, my inner and outer failures um, from, from you. I, um, as a result, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of gossip that I engage in and blame shifting. I'm angry at um, other people. Um, my gossip is spawned because uh, it's a subtle form of self-exaltation. I need, I need for you to be littler so that I can be bigger because I'm simply not... I'm not um, settled in my value with the Lord God. And so I... Um, I... I uh, I hide from you what I really am, and I pretend and I and, and, and another um, possible 
outgrowth is that I, I, uh, I am exhausting myself with church work so that you'll approve of me somehow. So that's, that's one of the, um, the uh, behavioral pathologies that, um, th- that may be associated with a lack of understanding of adoption. Here's a second one. <clears throat> um, when pain strikes, when, when life is out of control, um, we react as if God has abandoned us or that he's out to get us. Um, um, I, I view my trouble as some kind of payback from God. Um, and so I'm either filled with guilt because I think I deserve this bad thing or bitterness because I feel like I don't deserve it. My reaction to life out of control is I'm either guilty because I think God is out to get me or uh, how could uh, I ever trust this God because look at all the good things that I'm doing and I don't deserve what I'm getting. Um, so I, um, I either become defensive or angry at God when in fact, guys, um, when life is out of control, <clears throat> when there's difficulty, <clears throat> um, a son views it like this. He views it as, um, as his heavenly father putting his finger on things that need to go. That he's exposing things in me that, that are in competition for his, for his um, place. So those things he puts his finger on, he's putting his finger on our idols, and instead of thinking it as a, a redemptive, as an expression of a, of a loving Heavenly Father removing things from my life that separate the two of us, I view it as some kind of payback or um, gotcha or he's going to get me. Or, or I become bitter because I don't deserve this because I'm, 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 really, um, I'm really living... Um, I, I'm really... I don't deserve because I'm living so good. How could he ever? How could he ever do this? Um, I, I, there's an increase in self pity. There's a, a characteristic bitterness toward God. After all, look how good I am. Uh, how could God treat somebody that's acting as well as, as as well as I am? How could He treat me like this? Um, so instead of viewing difficulty as as God um, in love, eliminating things that separate the two of us. I view them as his acts of real, um, uh, I, that are undeserved. Or if they are deserved, I, um, I shrink into a pattern of guilt. Um, um, so, one of the places that you can see uh, a failure to grasp adoption is in is is in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of uh, life being out of control. Um, um, l- let me show you this. This is um, 
I've showed you this before, but this, this never ceases to amaze me. If you've got a Bible, if you can find Deuteronomy 1 real fast, uh, it's the fifth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a... Um, it's, um, um, it's, it's a series of sermons. It's a series of reckon, uh, recollections on the part of Moses about what all the things that God has done for Israel. It, 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 Moses is at the end of his life. The word Deuteronomy means second law. That is, he is, he is rehearsing these things again. He's going through them all and, and telling all, uh, them of what God has done for them, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And he, he mentions Egypt and how he uh, got them out of the slavery of Egypt. He mentions the Red Sea and parting the Red Sea. And then he comes to the lat- in the latter portions of, um, of chapter 1, uh, beginning at verse 19. He mentions the experience at Kadesh Barnea. Now, if you don't know the, 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 the experience at Kadesh Barnea, it is a watershed in the history of Israel. Israel has come out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They're, 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 it's early on. It's like a two-month into the whole thing. And they come, to a, they come to this place called Kadesh Barnea, which turns out to be 11 miles from the promised land. 11 miles. They are 11 miles from being where God had promised them. And God tells them to send out 12 spies into the promised land and go spy it out and come back with a report. The 12 spies go out, as you may recall. They come back. Ten of them come back with a bad report. Two of them come back with a, let's go get them. And that was, of course, um, Joshua and Caleb. Those are the two that say, yeah, 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 we can do it. The other 10 come back with a real negative report, scare everybody's uh, pants off, and they say, oh, we can't take the promised land. <clears throat> and this is what I want you to see in verse 26. Uh, Moses is saying in this sermon, he says, nevertheless, you would not go up. This is 126. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us. Look at that. Things got bad. And the default mode was to conclude that God hates us. God hates me. Or this wouldn't be happening to me. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the the mindset of a slave, not the mindset of a son. If you get in difficulty and you come to the conclusion that God is after you... It's because you live like a slave and not a son. Sons don't think that God hates them. Sons believe that God and the uh, the heavenly father is putting his finger on our idols to eliminate things that would uh, subtract from intimacy with him. But here's a bunch of people whose first emotion is when things got hard. Oh, God hates me. That's a slave, ladies and gentlemen. That's the mindset of a slave, not a mindset of a son. A son views difficulty as, um, as an opportunity to eliminate things that, that um, subtract from the int- intimacy that I have with my father. i got to keep going. Uh, here's the third pathological um, behavior. We base our self-image and our sense of acceptance with God on my goodness and moral effort. Oh, my goodness. Um, God loves me more when I'm a good boy. He loves me less when I'm a bad boy. That my, um, my sense of acceptance with God is based on how good I am 
and what kind of moral effort I'm putting forth. I hope you understand, ladies and gentlemen, that that, in essence, is a, uh, at least a partial denial of the doctrine of justification by faith. That my standing with God based, is based in and rooted upon, grounded upon my performance. Uh, if you think like that, ladies and gentlemen, that, that my whole sense of acceptance is on how well I'm doing, how well I'm performing, you're acting like a slave, not a son. Not a son who knows that he is a family member, his status has changed and he's been adopted. No. That's not my, my whole sense of acceptance. And it's not based on that. It's based on my performance. That's a slave, ladies and gentlemen. This whole performance mentality. Let me tell you where, let me, theologically where it shows up in a, in a very subtle way. Every one of you, no, I, I shouldn't say that. Many of you are sitting out there tonight thinking that if you live good lives, you're going to get rewarded in heaven. That is false, ladies and gentlemen. False. The only reward that's ours is heaven. The the, the right to be in the presence of God forever. That's the reward. And so you talk about the crowns that you're going to get. And you talk about uh, all all the places and, you know, your mansion's going to be bigger. That's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. It's based on an idea that if I perform well, I'll get more. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not grace. You might have entered the kingdom through grace, but boy, you you forgot it when you got inside. That is, my whole sense of who I am is based on how well I perform. God forbid that you should ever fail. I hope you don't fail. Because then, ladies and gentlemen, what about your acceptance then? I'm valuable because I raised some three good kids. What happens when the kids fail? Who are you then? Is your... Is your status and standing due to the performance or the lack of same? Ladies and gentlemen, that is is the mindset of a slave, not a son. Stop all this silly talk about when I get to heaven, I'm going to have more than you. No, I'm not. No. I'll tell you what we're all going to have, heaven, and it'll be enough. And nobody will complain about, I didn't get as many as you got, and all that silliness. Do you see what that creates in the, peop- in the minds of the people of God? I got to be good because I'm going to get some more goodies in heaven. No. No. The reward, ladies and gentlemen, is being in the presence of Christ forever. That's it. And we all get it. Every son gets it i got to read you a quote. <clears throat> this is, this is, um, this is um, from John Newton. And it's, it's so interesting. Because John Newton is writing to another pastor. Another pastor who is doing the same thing. And he, John Newton, the pastor, is writing to another pastor. And he says this. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, 
You cannot be too aware of the inward and inbred evils you complain of, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person working promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. Oh, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Ladies and gentlemen, that's an assault on the doctrine of justification by faith. What do you mean you can't forgive yourself? Are you casting aspersions on the finished work of Christ? You've got this low opinion of yourself? Great! But you've also got too low an opinion of the person working promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. Listen to this. You complain about sin. But when we examine your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. Guys, for many, many professing believers inside the household of faith, obedience or, or godliness is keeping the rules. You, um, you get this real sick sense of um, compulsive obedience and I, and I obey these moral codes because of the fear that he's going to reject me. I, I have this driven moralism. Lots of self-criticism. The things that you complain about are, I mean, you've got all this guilt. What does he say? Dead gum and I lost the quote. Um... You're, um, you're complaining. It's, the things that you're saying are worse than the, the sins that you complain about. <clears throat> Guys, obedience is done. You know, that, that's why you hear me use the term so much about um, likeness of Christ or likeness to Christ. I don't talk too much about rule keeping. I talk about um, Christ-likeness. Um... That's what we're after, guys. Not some kind of rigid uh, obedience. You complain about sin, but when we examine your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness and unbelief and pride and impatience that they are a little better than the worst evils you complain of. Guys, I'm glad you're obedient. I'd rather you be obedient than not obedient. But that kind of driven obedience because you're fearful of your... That's That's the mindset of a slave not a son. I want to be obedient because I want my father to get glory. I want to be obedient because I want to be more like the Savior who died for me. I want to be obedient because I want to express gratitude for you, but not if I do bad, he's going to come get me. That's a slave. And, and guys, you're, you're very close to to tampering with the beauty of the doctrine of justification by faith. Remember I said this last week that Martin Luther said the doctrine of justification by faith alone should be in every sermon. Because we, don't, we know it, but we don't know it. We know it, but we continue to think like slaves. Um, 
Now, um, let me do one other thing, and, and then I'll quit. Let me just kind of um, draw this to a, a conclusion. Gang, um, first of all, all of us have to recognize that ordinarily, both motives are present within us. That is, we're, we're trying to be like a son, and we're trying to be like a son. We're, we're, we're pretty much a combination of those two things almost all the time. But if you recognize that there's a bunch of fear and pride and anxiety and hurt feelings and anger, all of those will be good indicators of a, of a high level of slave mentality. Um, there's, there's no motive that is perfectly pure. I told you the story, I've told it before, uh, when I was with R.C. Sproul one night, we were in his apartment, and, and it was before um, Grace Van was started, and I, and I was thinking about the idea, and I, I said to R.C., I said, um, you know, I, I don't know what my motive is. You know, I don't know whether I want to have my own thing so that I can, you know, uh, make, build myself a reputation and, and um, you know, uh, promote myself, or whether I'd, I'm interested in seeing... Um, God be glorified and the gospel be preached and people won to Christ. And he said, well, I think it's motivated by pure self-glory. I think it's motivated by self-glory. At least 30% of it. The other 70% is probably you're interested in the kingdom of God. Now forget the 30 and get on with the 70. That was good advice. No motive, ladies and gentlemen, is perfectly pure. None of them are. So um, you need to recognize, but when you start seeing those other things, uh, the bitterness and the anger and the, the anxiety and the insecurity and all those things, guys, it's because you're thinking not like a son, but like a slave. Now, let, let me do one other thing and, and um, I'll quit. Guys, the gospel... Um, Contained in the gospel. The gospel is a message. It's a pronouncement. It's a proclamation. Not about what you're supposed to do, but what, uh, about what God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus. Um, that gospel is not simply designed to um, change our um, uh, whether we go to heaven or hell. It does do that. But it's also to change the way we think completely as it brings us more and more in line with with the truth. But additionally, the gospel changes us because it brings us into um, fellowship with a father, with a heavenly father. So we, ladies and gentlemen, have got to learn to preach the gospel to our own souls. We've got to be reminded of the provisions of the gospel. Guys, um, I was asked just recently, in fact, I was somewhat upbraided um, by someone that I adore, uh, who told me, why don't you preach more topical sermons? You know, why don't you preach something, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, preach on, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, <laughs> tolerance, or preach on that. Or preach on uh, patience. You need to preach on a topic. 
Now, why don't you do that? Um, well, I don't do that. I don't do that, ladies and gentlemen, and I want you to understand why I don't do that. Now, there are occasions when, you know, I set aside three or four weeks to talk about marriage because we've got 17 divorces taking place in our church. So, you know, th- that's kind of a topical when you do a, when I do a little thing on marriage. But in the main, I don't preach on topics. Let me, let me explain to you why. Ladies and gentlemen, if I stand up, let me take the issue of forgiveness because you'll see why in just a second. Let's just, you know, we all know that we're supposed to be forgiving people. We all know we're supposed to forgive those people who've sinned against us, you know? We know that. <clears throat> don't you? You know that, don't you? Okay, good. So if I get up here and I preach to you about, let's be all, forgiveness is good, you know, that's a good thing, it's a good thing, and let me show you all these things, all these verses that say forgiveness is a good thing, now, it's a good thing, and now y'all all, all be forgiving people, now get on out of here and, and go forgive. I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that that produces absolutely nothing. Nothing. You might like my anecdotes. You might like the, oh, uh, mm, that was really well done, Dr. But, ladies and gentlemen, I do not believe that changes you. Now, here's, here's an example. It's in Matthew chapter 18. We don't have time to turn to it. But everybody in the room, I think, knows of the parable of the man who owed the $10 billion to his master. A debt, says the text, that he could not pay. And so the, the, the master forgives him of that debt. And then he turns right around and he goes find somebody that owes him a hundred bucks. And he says, give me my money. And the other servants of the house see that master who got the forgiveness of the big debt. <clears throat> they come back to the master and say, hey, 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 you know what he did? Master calls him back and says, you're, you're toast, buddy. Now, now here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. How do you learn to forgive? I'll tell you how. You concentrate on the size of your debt. You go back to the gospel and you concentrate on the size of the debt that has been forgiven you. And once you get that, once you are aware of the enormity of what we have been forgiven because of the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ, then that begins to give rise in the inside of us to a willingness to forgive somebody who owes me a hundred bucks. When I understand of what I have been forgiven, I become a forgiver. But if all I've got for you, hey, hey, forgiveness is a good thing. It's in the Bible there. You know, it says right there, you're supposed to forgive. Now, you people, you know that what Jesus says is true. This is the Bible, you know, and and we believe the Bible. Now, y'all all go out of here and be forgiven people. No, ladies and gentlemen. I take you back again and 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 again again to the gospel. 
I take you back to the finished work of Christ and what it has done for us. And, and, and because of his finished work, I've been adopted. I'm a son. I'm not a slave. And that begins to change my behavior. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I may be wrong, but at least you know why I don't preach topics. I'm convinced the thing that you need to know more than any topic contained in this book, it's this one. You need to know of what God has done in Christ for wicked people like us. And the more that that takes up residence down there, the more it gives rise to Christ-like living. That's what that parable does. That's the, the point of the parable is forgiveness, yes. But the way that you get forgiven, the point of the parable is somebody who's been forgiven and what you've been forgiven you ought to be better at forgiveness. So what do I tell that guy? I tell him, go back and remember all that the master forgave you. Go back and look at it again. Because the gospel is not simply that message that saves our souls. The gospel is a message that's supposed to change the way we think. It's supposed to bring me in to conformity with the truth. And it's supposed to bring me into, into the presence. Of a heavenly father. And the more I begin to think like that. The less pathological behaviors I have. Our Father, um, would you indeed make us healthy people? Um, people who understand the beauty of the provisions of, that are ours in Christ Jesus. Um, Lord, um, would you remind every single person in this room of the enormity of their debt? And then remind them that the debt is paid. The debt is forgiven. And that's going to make it easier on all of us to go forgive somebody else. Our husbands, our wives, our colleagues, our neighbors. And the more we know about the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners, the more our life will be brought into conformity with his. And that's what we're after, Father. We're not after some kind of moralistic um, hyper-obedience or afterburner church work. We're after the gratitude that flows from the heart that's been, that knows of what it has been delivered. Don't ever let us forget it, Father that the debt that we owed you was one we simply could not pay. 
And the good news of the gospel is, by grace and mercy, you have forgiven it. Based on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Father, might that... um, might the knowledge of that deliverance swell within the souls of your people. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.